Welcome to Future Directions, a podcast about research. In today's episode, I had an amazing conversation with Dr. Barbara Rothbaum, a pioneer in PTSD research, who was really one of the first to use virtual reality as a tool for therapy. It's awesome to see how her research proves treatment can really work and it can change people's lives. This is the last episode of 2019, and it's a bit longer than usual, but everything was so interesting, I couldn't decide what to leave out. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the year. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rothbaum. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. (laughs) So you're a professor in psychiatry and the director of the Trauma and Anxiety Recovery Program, both at Emory. And you really are a pioneer in this field. But before we get into all that, I'm very curious about your motivation to work in the field because I can imagine it's very heavy stuff working with other people's trauma all day. It is. Um, Not everybody should do trauma work. (laughs) But I'm, I'm a professor in psychiatry, but I'm a PhD. I'm a cognitive behavioral psychologist. And cognitive behavior therapy, CBT, works really well for anxiety, and we've got some good treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and trauma. So at times, I feel like I have someone's broken heart in my hands. The pain in the room is so palpable, and then they get better. So it's really, it's it's hard, but it's very rewarding. Mm. Yeah, I guess in a way, you kind of see the benefits of your research, whereas in other fields, you might not. I love clinical research for that reason. I mean, I like clinical work, I like research, and I like doing research that helps people. And when we're doing studies of our treatment, so if we're studying a treatment, we think it's going to help. And then we can see, you know, obviously we have to aggregate the data and and wait. And so it it takes a long time to do clinical research. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually like at least five years of the study before we break blinds, before we know what's happening. But we're working with individual patients. So we can see when someone seems to be improving, and that that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most common techniques used across the field for data collection? Can I talk about treatment first? Yeah, of course, yeah. (laughs) Um, Because for treatment, well, first, I'm going to back up and talk a little bit about trauma and PTSD, Mm -hmm. if that's all right. Yeah, perfect. Um, So it's post-traumatic stress disorder. It's the only anxiety disorder, and actually they took it out of the anxiety disorders in the DSM-5, but I, most of us think it's the epitome of an anxiety disorder. So it's the only anxiety disorder that an outside event is part of the diagnostic criteria. The trauma is part of it. And so most of us, 70% of us, are exposed to a traumatic event in our lifetime, but not 70% of us end up with PTSD. We're, we're animals, we live in a dangerous world, and for the most part, we're pretty well equipped to process that traumatic material so it doesn't interfere with our lives. And in fact, it helps us because it's good to know where something dangerous happened and if we survived, how we survived it. But for some people, and we think that part of the reason they develop PTSD is that they they don't process it. So it's so painful, they push it away, they don't think about it. Whereas most of us, we'll, we'll cry, we'll think about it. We'll, it's like the grief process. We'll be with other people who miss them too. And it's painful, but there's really no way to the other side of the pain except through it. And we most of us get through it. With folks with PTSD, they avoid it, and then they get stuck in it, and then it haunts them. And so that's really what I see as the essence of PTSD, the haunting nature. They have 
re-experiencing symptoms, nightmares, flashbacks, and it doesn't feel like something that happened in their past. It feels like it's intruding day to day. And it it's it sucks. It's a bad disorder to have day yeah. and night. There's sleep problems, there are problems during the day. So there there's almost no escape. The problem when getting back to like data collection is there is no objective test of PTSD. There's no blood test. There's no brain scan. It's all based on the patient's self-report. Even our clinician measures, our interviews, we're asking the patient about their symptoms. And so, so there's no physical indication. Right. I mean, so we're all looking for it. That's like the holy grail <laughs> in the field right now is to look for objective measures mm. and, and in a couple of different ways. So risk, because like I said, most of us will get exposed to a traumatic event. Sometimes if it's very, very severe, it doesn't even matter the risk factors, you're going to see PTSD. Where it might not be as severe, those of us who have more resilient, for example, genes and history may not have a long-term problem, whereas those of us with more risk, genes, history, we will have a problem. So it gets messy yeah. to and assess. Do we know what these risks are, or are we still? is that something that's still under development? Yeah, no, that's part of the holy grail. We know, we know general things that aren't really that helpful at an individual level. So, for example, females are twice as likely as males to get PTSD. Wow. But that's not really helpful on an individual level. We know if someone thinks or feels like they could be seriously injured or killed or someone they care about could be seriously injured or killed, that's a big risk factor. And that isn't just based on the objective severity. So you and I can be walking down the street together and we get held up. You're sure he just wants our money and is going to leave us alone. I'm sure he's crazy on crack and is going to kill us. People would say we'd been through the same event, but really we hadn't because in yours, your life wasn't mm -hmm. in danger. In mine, it was. The perception is different. Right. So the perception is important. And the perception is sometimes influenced by stuff that happened in the past. I think it's also influenced by genetic and biological predisposition. So it, it, it's all very complicated. Yeah, it's very, very personal. Mm -hmm. And so going off of that, what techniques do we have to kind of as a group, uh, agree on the things that we're going to use as markers for PTSD or, yeah, how yeah. do you agree on that? Um, it's, it's actually really complicated. So NIH has put out common data elements, I mean, for everything. Um, so for PTSD, the common data elements is the PCL-5, the PTSD Checklist 5, and that follows the DSM. DSM is like our Bible of diagnoses, <laughs> the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, I think, and it's the fifth revision of it. Um, the PCL is self-report, basically the 20 symptoms of PTSD. And for PTSD, you have to have, it has to be at least a month after the event. The symptoms have to have persisted at that level mm -hmm. for at least a month. So we, we're doing a number of different kinds of research. So one that we've been doing for a long time is treating chronic PTSD. So people who've had it at least three months, six months, years usually, and then we're investigating different treatments and looking for response markers of treatment. But then we're also trying to prevent PTSD. So that research is really hard. Yeah. Um, but I think it's fruitful because since the trauma 
is part of the diagnosis since it's post-traumatic. So one day there's no PTSD, there's a trauma, then PTSD develops. So it lends itself perfectly to intervening and maybe trying to prevent PTSD. And we know that there are things that happen right after exposure to trauma that can help or hurt. And so trying to do the things that help. We also make a lot of analogies with PTSD and fear conditioning. It's a reductionistic model, but it, it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and more than several years ago, Mike Davis, who's now retired, and, and Carrie Ressler, they figured out that if you do, in an animal model, if you do fear extinction training right after fear conditioning, that in their words, it erased the fear memory. Now, we would never say that in humans, but it's a, it's a good model. And in some ways, we know that. So for minor example, you fall off your bike, you get hurt, you get back on, and that's part of the memory. Fell off, got a boo-boo, got back on, was okay. If you don't get back on, and then you develop a fear of getting back on, then it's this whole big thing you have to overcome. So, so at the moment of the trauma, it's very important to have these specific behaviors that help you overcome in the long term. Right, and I think if it happens immediately after the trauma, it gets incorporated with the trauma memory. Okay, right. So for example, when we're treating rape survivors, if they report to the police and go to the hospital, for example, Grady, in the um, trauma unit, we the first time we're going through the memory of what happened, we ask them what happened in the hospital because it's so soon after, sometimes that can make it worse, sometimes that can make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, so we... we started studying an early intervention actually at Grady in the emergency department within hours of somebody experiencing a traumatic event. So when you talk about data, that is hard to measure Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. One, most people don't end up with PTSD. So when you're trying an early intervention, And what we do is compare the early intervention to assessment only. So same people come in to get randomized to either just assessment or the early intervention. Most of the people are not going to develop PTSD. So it looks like so assessment only is actually a very effective intervention. So we got to beat that. We got to beat natural recovery. Um, The other thing that makes it hard is you have to have PTSD for at least a month to diagnose it. So it's not valid to assess PTSD within hours Mm. of experiencing the traumatic event. So having a baseline to compare it to, you know, in most chronic disorders, so people will come in, they've got a PCL score of a certain amount, we'll look at the treatment and we want it decreased by a significant amount, and then we can say, yeah, it was successful. We can't do that in early intervention and prevention studies. So... This is a research talk, right? So I yeah. think the, the measurement and, and being able to detect an effect is actually difficult. Mm. Yeah, I can also imagine it's hard to have enough statistical power, I guess, because of both all these constraints that you have and also the amount of patients. I'm guessing it's not a lot of people that just come in wanting to get over this trauma because part of it is wanting to suppress it. Right. And if they've been, if they've if they're at grading emergency room, so they've already been through probably one of the worst events of their life, they've probably been in the emergency room for hours, they're tired, they're upset, they just want to go home. So then they also don't want to participate right. in a research study. But you're right, the majority of people are going to be okay 
um, without any kind of intervention. Mm -hmm. um, some people who are more at risk don't want to talk about it, and so they're going to self-select out. And then you're right, for the power, since most people are going to, we can use the term recover, on their own, um, you also, you really, in some ways, need to enrich the sample for people who are more at risk for developing PTSD, but we have no great predictors, especially somebody coming in. I mean, now we're, we're starting to get some genetic stuff, but it's nothing that you can use in the moment for an individual. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you don't have great predictors of who's at risk and then you just enter everyone, then you would need a lot yeah. of people entered to have the power to detect a difference. Right. You're exactly right. And so I want to talk about the use of virtual reality because I know it's something that you that you use in your lab and you were one of the first to use in lab. And so what makes this technique special for PTSD treatment and how do you think it has the potential to change the way research is done in the field? So can I, can I go back and tell you a little bit of our story? Yeah, with, sure. With, with the virtual reality, we started doing the first study in, well, we wrote the grant in 1993, and I think we started the study in 1994, and it was, it was the first published study using virtual reality to That's treat awesome. uh, any kind of psychological or psychiatric disorder, and we did it for the fear of heights, and we exposed people to them just like we would do in regular, so in regular exposure therapy for any kind of anxiety disorder, what that means is we help people confront what they're scared of, but in a therapeutic manner. So most people, if they're scared, they either avoid or they white knuckle it through, run through it and get out and it's like, <laughs> you know, just barely escaped with my life. So they haven't learned anything new. I'm pointing to my, my brain and, and in my body. Um, for it to be a therapeutic exposure, you want to help them confront what they're scared of, stay in that situation long enough for their brain and their body to realize this is not a threatening situation. This is okay. So for your body to calm down, the distress to come down. And then they learn. And that's new, all new learning, that I don't have to be scared of this. It's, it's not threatening. So before the virtual reality, we did most of our exposure therapy, either what we call in imagination, in imaginal exposure. So we asked people to close their eyes and picture the situations or what we call in vivo, in real life. So we would go do a real elevator, go on a real footbridge. Um, so then we thought, okay, can we replace some of those with virtual reality? Because it's also, it's a pain to leave the office and to go find a footbridge or <laughs> our building's not very tall, so the elevator wouldn't do too much here. Um, and it worked. People's fear came down. Well, actually their fear went up. And then when we stayed in the situation, it came down, just like it would in a real life mm -hmm. height situation. And then what was really cool is without us even asking folks, seven out of 10 of them at the end of therapy put themselves in real life height situations. Wow. So it translated. Their experiences in the virtual reality changed their behavior in the real world. That's incredible. And we had videotaped all the sessions. We had someone go back and listen. And any time someone reported a physical sensation of anxiety, they wrote it down. And they reported all of the same physical sensations of anxiety that you would expect in a real-life height situation. So that, in some ways, brought the outside world into our office because we do exposure therapists do a lot of stuff outside of our office. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's not convenient. So and it's a more controlled environment. Exactly. I guess. You know, so for example, fear of flying. So I would get a lot of patients with the fear of flying, and it's 
a pain to treat because I got to go to the airport, which in Atlanta, it's it's a pain (laughs) to get there. We used to be able to get a stationary airplane to use with people since 9-11. We can't. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of money. If I actually have to fly with a patient, they've got to buy my ticket. It's going to take all day. Insurance doesn't pay for all of that. So with virtual reality, we've got a virtual airplane, and we've done a number of studies comparing using the virtual airplane to using a real airplane, and it works just as well. So now I can do all of the exposures right here within my 45-minute therapy session without leaving the office. Like you said, I've got more control. If my patient's not ready for turbulence, I can guarantee there won't be turbulence. When they are ready for turbulence, I can guarantee there will be turbulence. And for that, there are a couple of ways we measure results. So again, for psychology, psychiatry, most of it's still based on self-report. But we can also put people in the situation and we do what's called a behavioral avoidance test. So you can put people in the situation and see how high their anxiety goes when they're in it. So, for example, we, can, we did that with the fear of heights. You know, put them in the, and go up in the virtual floor and get their rating of anxiety. So it's still subjective. It's their, their anxiety, but we're holding all of the conditions constant that we can put everybody through the exact same conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also measure real life. So, for example, fear of flying, how many people actually flew afterwards. And, and in one study at follow-up, it was 90% of people in either treatment. So so the virtual reality, I think, works really well for some of those situations where we can bring the outside world into our office. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, since it's a research podcast, is it offers some methodological control. So we, again, Mike Davis and Carrie Ressler found the, a drug, decycloserine, they found that it facilitated the extinction of fear. It was FDA approved over 50 years ago. It's an old tuberculosis drug. It's an old antibiotic. So we could use it with humans. And we wanted to, usually in psychology studies, psychotherapy studies, that's kind of softer. You know, if I do therapy, it may not look exactly the way you do therapy. And we really want to control it. So we used the virtual reality because we could exactly control the dose of exposure that a patient, a participant received, and we could make sure that every single participant got exactly the same dose. So I really do like the virtual reality for the methodological control that it can offer in studies as well. Yeah, it's exciting that this is a new tool that the field has to explore different techniques. Yeah. And what are what would be considered like controls in your experiments or placebos, or do you not have? Yeah, well, it depends what the question is and what we're studying. So if we're studying different psychotherapies, sometimes it's a condition that we don't think it'll be useful for that disorder, but might have other benefits. Um, So for example, in the early PTSD study, sometimes people would use relaxation as a comparison condition that we don't think that relaxation, I mean, there's a lot of tension and anxiety in PTSD, so relaxation is going to feel good might be a useful skill to learn, but we don't think it's really going to treat the PTSD. It is hard to find placebo psychotherapies. So sometimes what we'll do is use just a weightless control. So we assess people at pretreatment, assess everyone at the same time, then we randomly assign people to the different conditions. If they get the weightless control, 
they don't get any therapy in between. They get assessed at the same time points that the folks getting therapy, so pre- and post-treatment. If treatment, let's say, is eight weeks, then we assess them eight weeks later as well, and then we'll give them treatment. Okay, so ultimately you do give them treatment yes. eventually. Yes. I mean, in, in my studies, I figure if people sign up, mm-hmm. it's because they want treatment. Right. Yeah, that's what I was uh, trying to get at. Yeah. If we are comparing a medication, then obviously we can use a placebo. So you started working on PTSD very soon after it was even diagnosed. So you really have seen it change from its inception. In what ways do you think it has changed, the type of research being done? Um, so it's interesting, yeah, because we I started working in PTSD in 1986. It was made an official diagnosis in the DSM-3 in 1980. So for a long time... I knew everything going on in the field. I could know the entire literature yeah. <laughs> for a while. Now I can't. I mean, which is great because a lot of yeah. people are doing are doing research. Some things have advanced and some things have stalled. One of the most the one of the treatments with the most evidence of its efficacy is exposure therapy, and that's what we do here, and that's what we were studying in 1986. Um, so, in some ways, that that basic idea has has stayed the same. We're trying different ways of delivering it. Mm-hmm. Um, for medications, there we've only got two medications with an FDA approval for PTSD. Oh, um, that's not a lot. No, um, sertraline or Zoloft and paroxetine or Paxil. And they were FDA approved in the late 1990s. So nothing has been approved for PTSD in, I think, 20 years or almost 20 years. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that those drugs, the SSRIs, they, they're a little bit helpful for PTSD, but they're not the answer. Hmm. And I think it's going back to, because we don't exactly know what PTSD is. We don't exactly know where it is in the brain. I think at the end of the day, there are going to be probably many different subtypes of PTSD. And so there, it, it's hard. It's hard to measure. In some ways, it's hard to diagnose, and it's hard to get a hit. So I think drug companies have been hesitant. I think so. That's one of the things coming out. People are getting more interested in PTSD again, and they're looking at different kinds of drugs mm-hmm. other than just the SSRI. So that's very exciting. And I also think um, we're looking at more biomarkers. So we're looking at biomarkers for, for risk for PTSD, biomarkers to help diagnose PTSD, and biomarkers to predict the response to treatment. So we don't have the answers yet, but a number of people are looking for those biomarkers, including um, genetic risk in certain alleles. So I think that's very exciting. So what are the next steps in terms of studies? What do you think are the next big studies that are needed in the field? I think we need a lot. Um, (laughs) I do think that the biomarkers is going to contribute a lot because we really need to figure out what PTSD looks like biologically. We need to figure out how to measure that and we need to come up with a marker that then um, or molecule that we can develop treatments Mm -hmm. that, that can change it based on what it is. The, the SSRIs, um, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, aspirin helps a headache, but we don't think the headache was caused by lack of aspirin. I mean, it's really, it's not very precise. Mm. And the medications we have out there now are not very precise. So I think we need to learn a lot more about the disorder. That gets hard, too, because there are a lot of different flavors of PTSD. 
So we'll have to figure that out as well and look at the biology of all of them and, and be able to characterize all of them. And the treatments might be different for some of these different subtypes that I think we're going to come up with. I think we also need to keep looking at which treatment for whom. So personalized medicine, because I think it'll be different based on the subtypes. I think it'll be different based on history. I think it'll be different based on, you know, tolerance. And so we need to, to be creative and figure out which treatment for whom and deliver it in the way that each patient needs it delivered. But how do you get there? Because like, I can imagine it's very hard to establish a new treatment. You're working with real people and you can't just run this strategy through a computer model and see if it works. So you have to go through a lot of trial and error, but these are real patients. So how do you go from just an idea of this treatment that could work to actually implementing it in patients. So that's where I love translational research. And I think PTSD lends itself very well to translational research. I know it's a reductionist model to look at fear conditioning and fear extinction, but it really does account for a lot of the symptoms mm -hmm. of PTSD. And again, there, there's no trauma, no PTSD. Trauma, PTSD, it's, it is a, a fear conditioning event. And so I think that a lot of our testing can be on animal models. And again, that's hard to get the exact model, um, but we can test it on animal models. And when it looks like it might be promising, then try that in humans. So we're not just shooting blindly in the dark. Again, you're right. We're, they're humans. We want to take care of them and really only want to try something that we think is going to help. Mm -hmm. And how good is the communication between PTSD researchers or experts and the patients who are basically the target audience because for me I think like what is the point really of doing all this if the people who need to benefit from it aren't getting that information yeah no that's a great point and it makes me sad for example our Emory Healthcare Veterans Program we, we offer excellent world-class evidence-based treatment everything is at no cost to the veteran and we're not full and we're, we're able to treat people from all around the United States we've treated <sighs> people from all 50 states we can fly them in, we put them up at the hotel across the street, so they don't know about it. We can't, we can't get the word out. Um, the one good thing, if you want to say a good thing at all, after 9-11, was I think that it brought that PTSD more into the, the public consciousness. And so it is something that people talk about a little bit more. That doesn't mean that someone recognizes that mm -hmm. they have PTSD, but if you say PTSD, they understand a little bit. Now, they... People only think it's the war veterans' disease, and it's it's a public health concern. Yeah. Because again, seventy percent of us are going to be exposed to some traumatic event in our lifetime. So I think I mean it's part of why I do things like this. It's part of why I talk to the media, getting the word out. So especially early on, talking about PTSD and what it looks like, the symptoms, um, and in the media, you know, I've had a number of people say. I didn't know I had PTSD. I just thought I wasn't coping. I thought I was being a baby. I thought I was weak, whatever. And then I hear the symptoms and I realize I've got PTSD. So I think getting the word out and helping people connect what happened to them and what's currently happening to them and to realize that it's PTSD. I also um, just finished writing my first book for the lay public. Everything I've written up till now has been for professionals. And I can plug it, Wink, What Everyone Needs to Know About PTSD by Oxford University Press. It's not out yet. So I thought, you know, people need to understand, you know, what PTSD is and mm -hmm. to know there's treatments out there. That's the other thing 
that I really want to get the word out. For example, in our veterans, even even if they understand they have PTSD, they don't want to come for treatment because they think the problems they're having are, are caused by what happened, what they saw, what they did, what happened to them. And they think, you can't change that. So how is anything going to help? And the, the message I want to get out is that treatment works. The problems they're having now aren't just caused by that event. It's PTSD or PTSD and depression or PTSD and depression and substance use or traumatic brain injury or all of the above. Mm-hmm. And that treatment works. And so that's what we need to get the message out that, you know, what PTSD is and the treatment really does work. Can we get better? Yes, of course. And you got a lot of people working to get better treatments and get it out there to more people. Hmm. But if nothing else, please label this treatment works. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say is an important quality to have as a scientist working with PTSD? Um, Probably several important qualities. You gotta, you hear a lot of bad stuff. So you have to have some ways to cope with that and not just let it get you down. You, you can't let that be your only view of the world. Um, so I think we also have to have optimism. And I am a real believer in the resilience of the human spirit. I have you know, heard about people going through things and I, I think, you know, how could anyone ever get over that? And then they do. So treatment really does help and we really are very resilient. Um, We also, you need to take care of yourself, process it, exercise, I mean, do the things to take care of yourself that we all should be doing. Thank you for doing the work you do. Thank you for helping get the word out. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone you think would be interested. Well, share it even if you don't think they'd be interested, because you never know. Follow Future Directions on Instagram and Twitter, and let me know what you think. Let's create a community of forward thinkers. See you next time!